I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is social marketing consultant and science writer Robin Stevens-Pays, author of Edge of Yesterday series, designed to open the minds of middle grade readers to the adventure of learning about STEM through storytelling, Robin Stevens Pays is firing up a love for science with the second book in her thrilling Edge of Yesterday science fiction series. STEM is the fastest growing sector in employment, up 28% since 2000. However, from 2014 to 2015 in the United States, there were only some 30,000 STEM graduates for approximately 230,000 STEM jobs. To help America reverse that trend, she's creating a curriculum that will present STEM through play, discovery, character, creativity, and storytelling. She works with teens through the Maryland Writers Association, Teens Club, Girls in Technology, and the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning. Welcome to the show, Robin. Nice to have you here. Thanks, Catherine. I'm happy to be here. I'm going to start the interview by sharing this information with you. I've speak, I've spoken to several parents just recently because I knew I was going to have you on the show uh, about STEM. And to be honest, I would say most of them don't even know what STEM is. So I think we can start with that problem. And they, they're not aware of what S-T-E-M stands for. Um, so let's, I think we have to start out with a description of STEM. What is it? Sure. Well, STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math, and it's it's gotten to be kind of a buzzword. Um, and and I, I think the buzz is if you if you know what STEM stands for, then you're in. And if you don't know what that stands for, you're out. But I I don't think that's valid. <laughs> you know, we want to extend it so everyone understands what this is about. So why is STEM important? Why do we why do people have to? Well, particularly parents, I would say, or. Um, why is STEM important? I mean, I mentioned, of course, in the introduction, we're talking about STEM graduates, people who are studies have studied STEM are so few in comparison the, to the jobs that are available. And as I understand it, particularly for women and uh, right. people of color. Um, so why is that? Uh, why is it important, or why are there so few Both. women? Both. I guess I asked you. Yeah, I guess those two. Are two different questions. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so I'll, I'll start with why it's important. Of course, you know, everyone has seen Amazon and Apple and and Microsoft. You know, grab the headlines just about every day um, in terms of how are how how they they're developing technology that is influencing our lives in big ways. And, of course, the people behind those companies that are making this are all uh, schooled in, this, in, in technology, engineering, math, and, and design. I, I include design in with the engineering, of course, um, and science. And they're making decisions uh, in, in developing products that are kind of affecting our lives uh, in positive and sometimes not so positive ways. And I think any parent who has given their child or seen their child with an iPad or, a, a, you know, a, a smartphone has seen some of both that positive and the not so positive ways that technology is influencing our kids. And so STEM is just important because it's just infiltrated our everyday life and um, whether we like it or not. But the the thing about getting more young people interested in STEM jobs, and particularly girls and, women and people of color, is that why aren't, and those are the fastest growing, highest paying jobs. Let me, let me also add that. Um, in, in the country today, not only in the country, but in the world. But the other thing is, if those people who are making the decisions that are influencing our everyday life so intimately are all men or, um, or, or, or predominantly men or predominantly, um, uh, you know, uh, Caucasian white men, men, <laughs> yeah, white um, men. Are, are not having the voices of, of women and girls and people of color, those communities are not represented in the decision-making about how those products are designed or made to make our lives better, easier, more convenient, then we're missing out on a huge portion of the population of the country that is using that technology. And why aren't those voices more represented? 
Yeah. Well, where do we get stuck? How do we get stuck? As I understand it, your book, I mean, your, your series are meant for middle schoolers, let's say. Sure. Kids in the middle. Sure. Yeah. Well, in my view, you know, I have three kids. <laughs> they're all grown now, but as I was watching them grow up, but what I realized is that when they're in elementary school, they're curious, they're fearless. We haven't really, um, we haven't really scared out of them the idea of asking questions and playing around and, and really trying new things. That gets to be a little different by the time middle school rolls around because, you know, we parents, as protective as we are, we want the best for our kids, and then we start trying to influence them in ways that we assume will make their lives safer, more productive, successful, all of that. We don't really know. <laughs> We're just basing it on what we know of our own lives. Um, the world has changed vastly. I don't know about you, Catherine, but since I grew up, the world has changed really vastly, and um, it, it's going to change even quicker by the time those kids who are entering middle school today are adults or even in college. And so the idea of preparing them to love the things that you know may sound scary I don't know about you, but I was not a science and math person growing up, and I steered away from those subjects and only to come back to them much later in life because um, yeah. they're hard. But if you can make it, if you can introduce them in middle school towards this idea that <clears throat> it doesn't have to be scary or hard, it can be fun, it can be relevant, it can have applications in your everyday life, it can have applications for your future, to me that's the idea that I want to stress with Edge of Yesterday and this whole learning through story series that I've developed. Well, when I was in school, uh, if you're asking me, uh, in middle school, the girls <laughs> took, um, it wasn't sewing, I forgot what you called it, but and the boys home were ec. taking shop. <laughs> yeah, so we took home ec, exactly, home ec, and, and, and I remember it, it took me, I was not good at that, and we had to sew some kind of an apron. It took me an entire semester or whatever <laughs> to do this stupid thing, and it wasn't even good, right? I would have been much better off in shop, much more interesting and much more practical. Well, that's changed. I have a grandson now who's three years old. I'm telling you my story just a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I did mm -hmm. take him to STEM at age two. And I'm in New York City, so there are a lot of STEM classes around. And take it, mm -hmm. and it starts, I think, at 18 months you can take these wow. kids. Yeah, wow. 18 months. And very small. You know, there are like five kids in the class, maybe six. And it's all about, I mean, it's... Uh, you know, engineering at two is different than engineering at 12, but um, <laughs> it, uh, it, it introduces them to, to well, they, touching things and feeling things and seeing how they work and all those kinds of things. So, yeah, I think it's, it's totally changed. And as you say, it's going to change even more and more. Um, but women seem to, I mean, I know some of the Ivy League schools, for instance, try to get women in undergraduate and graduate classes in engineering, and they can't seem to get at this point. It, the, I mean, I guess it's that is changing too in the past few years, but very difficult to get women majoring in engineering. Yeah, well, and there are a lot of reasons for that. I, I had the opportunity to interview Carol Dweck, who is the researcher at Stanford, who has done uh, just lots of research and is kind of leading a movement towards this idea of growth mindset. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, uh, growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset, which is um, I'm good at this and I will only be good at this, so I'm going to stick to this, versus growth mindset is well, I can always get a little better at something, so why don't I try and why don't I keep trying even if I have to, if I'm not good at it, you know, and how do you motivate kids in particular, adults too, but kids in particular to adapt that growth mindset that says, I'm just going to try, <laughs> um, is, is one of the things that has to change in my view, especially in college and graduate school when it comes to girls and people of color in, in these engineering and these, some of these harder STEM topics. Um, one of the things that uh, Carol shared with me in her findings is that um, girls who get into college and start in engineering or computer science or any of those, um, those fields that are so dominated by guys uh, find that oftentimes they're behind the eight ball because the subjects they've taken that are preparatory or even their experiences in life, you know, like 
tinkering with computers or making their own video games. The, the guys are just doing that because they are into it and it's fun and they might have a group of supportive, you know, other guys around them who are also doing it. So they, they play together in that sense. And girls don't tend to spend so much time in that category, you know, in, in doing those things. And so they find they're behind the eight ball and, and, and the atmosphere in those classrooms isn't often conducive to kind of asking questions and showing up, you know, looking like you don't know what you're doing. You have to look like you already know what's being taught in the class. And so it's intimidating, I think, to a, a lot of young women once they get to college if they haven't followed this track all the way through. Even if yeah, they I have think- the grades, the know-how and the, and the, with, you know, and the interest in the subjects. So they have the ability to do it. I mean, they have the sure. same ability starting at day one, let's say, boys and girls. But somehow they, they don't, they're not encouraged. And so right from the beginning, they're not encouraged. In, in, in yeah, stem. well, and it's yeah. subtle. You know, it's not like don't do this. <laughs> yeah. there, there are subtle ways that girls might be um, picking up cues that say this isn't for them or it's too hard or I'm not going to even try because my brother's so much better at that, I'm going to do something completely different. Uh, I, I don't think it's, there are big signs saying girls shouldn't do this. I think there are very subtle signs that includes yeah. in the environment that girls pick up on. And then it's somewhat insidious, I think, when you get into the, it's not just your environment at home, but in your environment at school. Um, you know, supposedly they're taking the same classes, the kids, the boys and the girls, but the the subtle ways in which teachers, I guess, or counselors can yeah, encourage yeah, or discourage no, the kids. True. It's it's yeah. uh, you know again there there are studies being done, research in classrooms that really show that um, you know again it's it's not an obvious thing and it might be a bias that teachers aren't even aware of, but that girls get subtly discouraged and boys get more encouraged or even left to their own devices to do the things they want to do where girls are expected to um, conform to another pattern of behavior, let's say. Robin, do you think that the Internet has helped kind of equal the playing field to somewhat? Because obviously girls do have the same access to the Internet, to, to computers, to all of those kinds of things, and they have their own personal computer. So has that leveled the playing field at all with amongst boys and girls? Um, hmm, that's a hard question. <laughs> I don't know. No one's asked me that before. Yeah. I I would say the computer is ubiquitous and kids are using computers all the time and every day. It's the ways in which they use them that might be different. Um, I, I, I haven't delved into that research to know, so it could only be anecdotal, you know, like stories that girls are looking at sites about uh, you know that that talk about relationship, or they're on Instagram and Facebook, and they're they're messaging each other, and and guys are doing other things. I I don't know if there's any would be interesting research to look for to see how that subtle influence, you know, how that influences, yeah, how it plays out. Because you do yeah. have the opportunity, I know for myself, because I sort of fit into the, your whole description of how women um, are taught and how we are, you know, sort of not encouraged in STEM. But I know now with the Internet, let's say there's something that I don't understand that has to do with technology. I mean, fairly simple, let's say, or science. Uh, you know, all these sites where you can do how-to, the how-tos, and you can go online and you can they'll show you how to do it and you don't have to be embarrassed But if you don't understand it because you can keep playing the thing over and over again. So, um you know, I, whereas I wouldn't necessarily want to ask somebody because I feel that I should know that, whatever it is. So um, I think it does give, I mean, that's just, that's anecdotal too, but it, it does give you yeah. more access. Yeah. yeah, well, it's definitely there. And any of that information is there if you're, if you're looking for it. I, I think also we want to keep in mind that for the age group that I target, this kind of middle school and high school age kids, they're not sitting in their spare time looking at how how to code a, a video game yeah. <laughs> on their com- they're not looking that up on their computer you know th- th- there's there's the question of what you have to learn in school and then there's the question of what you do with your spare time and i don't know how many kids are just going to sit down and figure out how to how to learn coding well okay. in your in your series 
uh, the edge of yesterday in your, in your STEM series. Uh, you talk about that this series actually goes a step further and creates an online community for teens, right? So how, right. yeah, so what are you going to, how does that, how does, how do you do that in, in, in the edge of yesterday or now it's Da Vinci's Code is the new well, edge well, of, well, yeah. Well, first of all, the, the books way. are about a STEM smart girl. You know, here's the, that acronym again, STEM, and I take it a little farther and I call it STEAM, which includes arts and design, um, because I think that broadens it and I do think those are all interconnected areas. Um, and she finds what she thinks are Leonardo da Vinci's plans for a time machine, which Leonardo himself didn't have the time, the uh, technology or the science to be able to do it. But, of course, in the 21st century, um, our, our hero, Charlie Morton, does. And for the middle school science fair, she decides she's going to build Leonardo's time machine. Um, and um, there's a little bump and a kiss, you know, a little romance, and whoops, the machine actually works, and it sends her reeling back 500 years across six time zones to land in an empty field at midnight under a hail of cannon fire, only to come face-to-face with Leonardo da Vinci himself, who's testing night warfare for his patron, Lorenzo de' Medici, the ruler of Florence at that time. And uh, so the time travel adventure begins with her, an accidental uh, trip back to uh, Renaissance Florence and, and finding Leonardo da Vinci in the flesh, um, which is leading her to all kinds of difficulties because she has her iPad with her, she has her phone with her. You know, she can tell the future. And this is still the Inquisition, mind you, in, in Italy at the time or in Florence and all kinds of uh, chaos that comes out of that, uh, having having knowledge of the future when the church is raining down against anyone who defies it. So you can imagine it's a little bit chaotic. <laughs> but, that's an um, exciting, yeah. Uh, how did you come up with that idea? I think that that's well, very it, clever. It, yeah, it started when, when my kids were kind of in that preteen and, and early teen age, and I was the soccer driving carpooling mom and listening in on their backseat conversations with their friends as we were driving the carpool to games and to school and band and all that stuff, their friends' houses. And um, I would listen in on their conversations when they thought I wasn't listening because I think carpooling is the best time for moms to learn what's really going on, moms and dads. Um, But anyway, I would hear everything that they, you know, the normal conversation of teenagers, you know, who's the mean teacher, how many tests have you had, who's having a slumber party, who's not invited, all that stuff. But they were also talking about all of their dreams and their passions and ambitions, and it kind of struck me that they wanted to be and do everything. You know, they wanted to be diplomats and dentists and anesthesiologists (laughs) and star soccer players and play professional jazz saxophone and 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 so the question came up in my mind well we ask kids to specialize really early on if they're not playing french horn in kindergarten they're not going to get into the right middle school or high school or god forbid college they're not going to make the right connections or get the right jobs and that's again that parental protection what we think of as protection protecting our kids but I wondered if there was ever a time when people were just allowed to explore and experiment on their own without, you know, this fear-driven idea of you have to do this to get that to go to the next level. And so just it began as a thought experiment, you know. How did, was there ever a time when people could do that? And I, of course, came up with the ultimate Renaissance man himself, Leonardo da Vinci, who we know is a brilliant artist and sculptor, but who was also an engineer, map maker, anatomist, physician, um, <laughs> kind of un- bri- engineer, bridge build, bri- bridge designer, you 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 name it. He, he um, per- personifies the Renaissance. It. Yeah, the Renaissance. You know, I you know, you described it uh, the car- the uh, 
of uh, the character in your book is going back 500 years to meet her idol. Uh, and Leonardo da Vinci has always been one of my idols. I think, I, and I've always thought about it in sort of the opposite in the way in, that you present it in the book. What would Leonardo, how would Le, and this was based on maybe not necessarily a book, but a film bringing Leonardo da Vinci into the present. What would he say? How would he feel? I mean, when he saw all of this, um, or even others like him, a, a group of, of scientists and artists and, and people like that. But yeah. uh, what would well, be his... Well, so, yeah. so Charlie goes back in the past because, you know, for this middle school science fair that she's going to win, she thinks if she scores an interview up close and personal with Leonardo himself, uh-huh. you know, there's no one who can beat that at the, science, at the middle school science fair. But it turns out she wants to learn from him because she wants to be a modern-day Renaissance girl like Leonardo was the ultimate Renaissance man, but what she finds out is she has way more knowledge than Leonardo ever did, so she's teaching him things that are 400, 500 years in the future. (laughs) So that is kind of getting at what your point is. You know, he is learning from her much more than she's learning from him, which is just totally perplexing to Charlie. Like, I didn't come here to teach Leonardo da Vinci about gravity. It, it, that's a great all you know as you're describing the book. All middle schoolers and parents, obviously, and and grandparents should, should read this series. I mean, uh, it's really an exciting way to present this whole idea of STEM. I think anyway. Um, so okay, so we're talking about though. How's this online community going to be? How, how are you going? How's that going to happen? Yeah, sure. So, so there already is an online interactive website. I call it Learning Through Story is kind of the idea. The stories, Renege of Yesterday, are the jumping off point, but they are not the whole story. So on my website at edgeofyesterday.com, um, kids can find um, games and puzzles and interactive quizzes and all kinds of stories that supplement and augment Edge of Yesterday, but aren't reliant on it necessarily. Um, and so I'm using it in with schools and after-school groups and book clubs and all kinds of settings um, to kind of get kids curious. Because if there's one thing, one takeaway that, from, that I got in my many years of studying Leonardo da Vinci, it's that we can't all be brilliant artists the way he was, but we can all be more curious. And curiosity leads to discovery. Discovery leads to invention. Invention leads to all kinds of great things, as we know, because we are such an innovation society. Um, And so the idea is to get kids curious and exploring and and interested in, in going beyond, you know, sort of what they learn in school, but doing it in a fun way through the story. So at edgeofyesterday.com, I have um, all kinds of fun stories I I use because of this audience in there. And, you know, I I do a lot of, um, I study teen brains. I do a lot of writing on adolescent neuroscience and things like that. Um, as a science writer, and so I've I've kind of studied studied the specimen, so to speak, and we know that what turns them on, what gets them excited, are things that are funny, stupid, gross, scary, or crazy. And so that's kind of my criteria for some of the stories that I pick to develop out on the site. And I actually have teens um, as as um, interns who are writing for me. I, I kind of teach them this crazy style of writing that I do for Edge of Yesterday, and for, for just so your audience understands, we do it all kind of evidence-based. Uh, what we write is not crazy or out of the blue. It's based on actual science and research and, and um, facts. <laughs> I believe in facts. So what about um, if an intern, and I'm, uh, we have about four minutes left, exactly. Sure. So what about if somebody wanted, and, and you know, who's listening, and um, yeah. also you can get the show on demand so it, people can listen are listening all the time. So how would you apply for an internship if you were a teen and wanted to work with you? Sure. Anyone who would, I, I love working with teens, and they're, they're so bright and creative, and it's just so engaging for me to be able to work with them. So I would recommend they... Um, contact me at info at edgeofyesterday.com. 
um, and email me at info at edgeofyesterday.com and inquire, just put intern in the subject line and I can send information about what the opportunities are. I'm especially looking for teens and, um, and college-age kids who are interested in working with me over the summer. I have a, um, more of a, of a developed internship program for the summer, which I find the kids have more time for anyway. And they'll learn a whole new style of creating and writing, and it's a lot of fun. Um, and especially for kids who already love to write or create, photograph, um, makers projects, all kinds of things like that. So I would encourage people to get in touch with me. Yeah, I mean, because teenagers are always looking for jobs that are sometimes not meaningful, and they sort of fall back on the, not that there's anything wrong with babysitting and delivering newspapers and stuff, but um, yeah, this is this this is quite an opportunity to work with you on something well, like I, that. Well, I have one intern who's working with me right now. She's a freshman in college, and she said, you know, I could have gotten an internship working at CNN where I would be getting coffee for some of the, you know, production team, or I could work for you where I'm really learning things. So I um, offer that I offer that up to a lot of people, and I, I look for people who are willing to uh, really dive in and get engaged and have a little fun. Um, it's harder than getting coffee, but you'll learn a heck of a lot more. Yeah, M- much more than getting coffee for the... <laughs> <laughs> the big wigs at C- CNN. I think that's that's very true. Okay, a couple of minutes left. Okay, so you have like your own. You have. You, I think you said you had three kids, right? Um, yeah. Who are grown. Um, mm-hmm. A couple comments from them in terms of what how because they were raised differently, different generation, obviously than than these teens that you're are interning with you now. Uh, do they have any message? Do they have any you know in terms of because you raised them? Um, yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah. For or comments on what you're doing now? Well, they're all, they're all wonderful and supportive um, of, of this crazy adventure that I've been on, and I've used, uh, picked their brains, and they are kind of informal advisors to me, especially when they were in those teenage years. Um, my younger son uh, was kind of my um, consultant on teen language and slang and that kind of thing, and um, so I try to keep it real. And they they ground me. They they definitely tell me this is not going to work, Mom. <laughs> you better uh, listen in on some some real teens talking to find out what they're interested in now. Um, but they they've been great. They've been really supportive, and and in many ways they are the role models for what has become uh, this. Uh, this lead character of Charlie Morton today. Okay. That's um, great. I mean, that's that we have to say goodbye, but that's that's a, a good comment to leave us with. Um, and uh, we've been talking to Robin Stevens Pays, an author of Edge of Yesterday series, and you can find her at theedgeofyesterday.com. So, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Catherine. It was great fun. Yeah. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, 
and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working For You with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is editor, curator, and author, James Geary, author of Wit's End, What Wit Is, How It Works, and Why We Need It. Wit is often thought of as simply being funny, but wit is more than just having a knack for snappy comebacks. It's the quick, instinctive intelligence that allows us to think, say, or do the right thing at the right time in the right place. In his recent book, James Geary explores every facet of wittiness, with each chapter written in a style that exemplifies a different kind of wit, wisdom, and sometimes even serendipity. He shows how wit is a state of mind as well as a sense of humor and why wit and wisdom are really the same thing. James Geary is the deputy curator of the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University, editor of Neiman Reports, and former editor of the European edition of Time Magazine. Welcome to the show, James. Nice to have you here. Thanks for having me, Catherine. So, wits and what, I'm going to start with the, t- with the title of the book, What Wit Is, How It Works, and Why We Need It. Well, what is wit? <laughs> oh, starting with the really hard questions. Well, that's um, right. Well, what I is think, wit? Uh, um, I think you mentioned the essence of, of the definition in your introduction. I think wit is um, the ability to think, say, or do the right thing at the right time at the right place. And, but I think um, like when we tend to think of wit in general, we tend to think of people who are funny or quick with a comeback or a quip or something like that. And being funny, I think, is part of being witty or it is an aspect of wit. But I think more than making jokes... Wit is, in its essence, about making connections, um, making connections between or among things that might seem on the surface not to have much to do with one another, but through the application of wit, you discover these hidden links or these hidden correspondences. And that's essentially what happens in a joke or a pun. You make a sudden um, link between two things that you had never uh, considered together in your mind before. But I think wit can also happen in other fields like discovery, you mentioned serendipity, inventions, innovations, the visual arts. Um, Wit doesn't have to only do with with words. It can be visual as well. Um, So I think wit is a much more broader kind of instinctive intelligence than it is simply a, a sense of humor. Okay, so wit is not just some funny, uh, of course, in a kind of, I guess you'd call it mundane. I think it, when you're having a dinner party, you want to invite people who are witty um, and are going to make the party interesting. Uh, and mm-hmm. so you'll often well, seek out people who are able to do that. But you're saying it's it's more than who you invite to the dinner party who's witty and funny and you know, can snap back with, with uh, cute little... Uh, like, you know, repartee, I guess. So let's talk yeah. about it wit and wisdom because in this up in the topics that you mentioned, because it's serious and it's mm. it's yeah. Yeah, I think wit is serious. <laughs> wit is serious business, and I think you do, you do want to invite witty people to your to your dinner party, <laughs> um, but they can be witty in ways that aren't necessarily. Um, funny. And, you know, the link between wit and wisdom is is a really interesting one. Um, Both words come from uh, an ancient uh, Sanskrit verb, vid, which means to see. Uh, And, of course, that's where the word video comes from that that we have in English, but it's also where the word wit and wisdom come from. And essentially, to see is to know something. 
uh, you know, uh, I see what you mean, basically means I understand what you're saying. And, you know, wit is also it's the same word as in witness. A witness is someone who sees something and then therefore knows something. And I think that's the, the essence of wit. It's a kind of knowledge or intelligence that's uh, improvisational, um, kind of instantaneous. It happens in a moment. It's not really, um, you don't, you don't, you can't think for a very long time and be witty. It happens in the moment. And I think if you, you know, if you think about the way that we use the word wit in daily conversation, uh, we're quick-witted or dim-witted or outwitted. We're living by our wits, coming to our wits end, um, keeping our wits about us. All those phrases, they have really very little to do with being funny or being humorous, but they have everything to do with kind of having a, a certain wisdom or a certain insight into how to get things done, how to solve problems. So I think that's the really deep kind of fundamental link between wit and wisdom. And so in terms of when you started writing this book, how did you get into, where did your interest come from? How did, why did you write this? Why did you write wit's yeah. end? Why did you- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I've always been, I've, since I was a little kid, uh, I've been uh, always interested in wordplay and language. And um, I remember uh, I've written a couple of books about aphorisms, which are short, witty, philosophical sayings. Um, like Mark Twain, I never let school interfere with my education. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I first discovered aphorisms when I was eight years old in the Reader's Digest, the quotable quotes page, um, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners will also remember. And something about that wordplay and the humor, but again, also the humor that combined with insight and wisdom really captured, captured my imagination when I was a little kid. And I became obsessed with collecting sayings and proverbs and aphorisms and ended up writing books about aphorisms and then I uh, wanted to understand how aphorisms worked and I realized they work by metaphor, um, which is combining or comparing two things that are uh, not alike and finding a hidden correspondence between them. And then I realized that metaphor was also deeply related to wit and wit was kind of the, the basic, I guess you could call it the basic operating system of, uh, I believe, of how human intelligence and, and human creativity works. Well, you certainly, you would be the one who would be invited to the party. (laughs) Dinner party. I hope so. The interesting, (laughs) yes. Um, Okay, let's go. The chapter, chapter on, because the chapters are written differently, and the chapter on witty verbal repartee, let's talk about that, is written as a dramatic dialogue, as I understand it. Explain that to us. Yeah. Well, you're mentioning um, inviting witty people to uh, dinner parties, which I think is, is, a, is a good idea. Um, there's a French philosopher, 18th century French philosopher, Denis Diderot. He was invited to a dinner party one night, and one of the guests there insulted him. And he was kind of, he was left speechless, and he couldn't think of a, like a retort or a comeback um, in the moment. But when he was walking down the stairs after the dinner party was over, and he was on his way home, he thought of it. <laughs> he thought of the, the perfect comeback. And he came up for a name. Uh, he came up with a name for that experience, l'esprit d'escalier in, in French, which means the wit of the staircase. And the wit of the staircase is the wit that you get only when it's too late to actually deliver it. And so the chapter about uh, witty repartee that, that you referred to um, is a dialogue between Denis Diderot and Madame de Stael, who was a, a contemporary of his and also an actual friend of his. So those are two historical figures, and I imagine a dialogue between them um, about how verbal wit works. And the reason I decided or I eventually arrived at the idea to write the book in these different styles is because uh, when I tried writing it, uh, originally, in a kind of straightforward prose, it was really, really boring, <laughs> and um, there was nothing witty about it. And I was committing that, you know, that big mistake that um, of explaining the joke, and I was explaining things too much. And in explaining things too much, you kind of destroy the humor of them and the and the surprise. And so I eventually came to the idea that instead of the book being about wit, it should hopefully demonstrate wit. It should show wit rather than tell wit. And that's how I came uh, up with the idea to write one chapter in a dialogue form as a a, a scene from a play. And another chapter is written 
like the lyrics to a rap song. I think rap lyrics can be extremely witty. There's another chapter written as a sermon you would hear on, at church on Sunday um, about spiritual wit. There's a chapter written as a scientific paper about how wit might work in the brain. There's a chapter on jokes, which is written in the voice of a guy in a pub telling jokes and, and thinking about jokes and philosophizing about jokes. So, yeah, each as you move from chapter to chapter, you encounter totally different styles uh, that are matched um, to the, the kind of wit under discussion. That's a very cl- that is witty and clever. And uh, <laughs> well, I hope so. That's that was the intention, anyway. That's the purpose. How long did it take you to write the book? Well, I think uh, the actual physical writing of it um, probably about eighteen months. But I did uh, about seven years of research um, prior to being even able to to write the book, um, and part of the research, part of the challenge of researching the book was. No one really studies wit directly, you know, um, like the, the, the chapter on uh, the neuroscience of wit, for example. There's no, there's very, very few um, studies that are, you know, exploring wit. But there are things related to, for example, certain kinds of de- brain damage that um, cause people to kind of make puns all the time or tell jokes all the time. So they're kind of interesting little avenues of uh, related uh, research that I discovered. But it did take a while to, to track it all down. And like I said, I didn't discover how I would write the book until I actually started doing it the, the wrong way first. Uh, and, then I, and then I came up with the idea of the different styles. So what keeps you from not getting frustrated? You say it took seven years to write the book. Um, just from the, you know, your own psyche, your own emotional state, you're writing this book. It's very different. It's unique. There isn't a lot, as you say, information. What keeps you going? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think for I think that's a question that's like crucial for anyone who is involved in any kind of creative pursuit, you know, whether you're a writer or a poet or a novelist or a dancer or a painter or a musician or you know, a gardener, anyone who has kind of a passion um that they're really dedicated to. And for me what kept me going was I was I just was continually fascinated by the subject. Um, and I think if you're like writing a book and you also, like I do, you have, I have a, a day job as, as well. I don't spend my, uh, all my, all my, all the hours in the day working on my books, unfortunately. Um, but I think to do something like that, you really need to be passionate about the subject and to continually find, um, kind of new facets to the subject. And that, and that certainly was my experience with wit. Um, and that's part of the reason why uh, it took seven years to, to research it is because I discover something and then do some research into that and then I discover something else and, you know, you follow those trails and that whole process is just fascinating. So I think the, you know, the, the, the challenge for anyone who's uh, doing creative work um, in their spare time, so to speak, is to be passionate enough about the subject, uh, the topic of your book, or whatever it happens to be, that you still feel committed and dedicated and um, inspired, despite <laughs> all the you know all the setbacks and and all the frustration of not having uh, more time to work on it directly. It sounds like also, James, that you got from the beginning, because I'm kind of going back to what you said at the beginning of the interview. Here's this little kid, you know, studying af, af, aphorisms and metaphors and, and you know, other kids are out, I don't know, playing soccer or whatever and video games, but you're not doing that. Someone must have been uh, your parent. Who encouraged you? I mean, you sort of started out that way, it seems to me. This was the path you... <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's um, it's actually, that's a really interesting question. I've, I've thought about that a lot. Um, I, my my parents, there were no, I grew up in a house that really didn't have any books um, in it. And I was the first member of my immediate family to, to, to go to college. Um, um, the only books in our house were my, I was, I'm the youngest of four, and I discovered my uh, elder siblings' high school anthologies of poetry and short stories in the basement, <laughs> getting all moldy after they were finished with them. Um, but I think the decisive, uh, for me, decisive experience was the two magazines that my parents subscribed to. One was Reader's Digest, and, and that's where I discovered aphorisms, and the other one was Time. 
and I ended up working for Time Magazine. <laughs> so I think somehow, who knows how people um, acquire or are born with kind of an innate passion or interest for something, but I certainly had that for reading and language and writing, and really it was Reader's Digest and Time Magazine that kind of opened the opened those doors um, for me, and in a kind of bizarre, or, but um, I guess karmically satisfying way, um, both Reader's Digest and Time Magazine kind of directed or um, kind of accompanied me through my kind of personal and professional um, development. And I ended up working for the one magazine and, and um, being inspired by the other to write this series of books. Well, your parents are reading also Reader's Digest and Time Magazine. Are you discussing that with them or with your siblings? You're the youngest of four. So, you know, dinner conversations, yours must have been, in, your questions must have been interesting. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we actually didn't discuss that at all. Um, but my parents were really, really witty people. Um, and they were verbally very, very funny. And, um, you know, I have a big extended family with, with lots of cousins. And my parents and uh, aunts and uncles uh, were very fond of throwing parties and at which they would like spontaneously perform skits and dress up. And there was lots of um, loving teasing going on in the family. And, you know, verbal wit was 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 highly, highly prized. Um, And my cousins and I, when we were little kids, we used to uh, hide behind the sofa and secretly uh, tape record, um, <laughs> tape record the proceedings, and sadly those cassette tapes are are lost to history. But I do think that um, um, that kind of growing up in that environment where you know, people were had a, a a great facility with verbal wit and there was lots of banter going on, that 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 did have a a, a huge influence on. Um, on me growing up, and you know, I see that I see that continuing with my with my own children and, and in my own family. So I do think, though my parents were not um, educated people, I do think they had a huge influence on um, my kind of appreciation for that kind of that that way that witty way of of dealing with the world. You can have a good you can have a great education and still not be encouraging uh, to your kids necessarily. Um, so I, I get that. I understand it. But uh, and then after high school, did you go to Harvard? No, I didn't go to Harvard. Uh, I, I work at Harvard now, but I didn't go to Harvard. I studied poetry in college. Um, I went to Bennington College in Vermont. And uh, <laughs> um, so the, and again, that's like uh Partly, I discovered, um, well, the interesting thing about my dad is after he, he passed away, um, I was living abroad then. I came home and I was helping my mom clear up his things and, you know, sort out his belongings. And I was cleaning out his desk. He was a, a salesman of aluminum siding and insurance. So um, I was cleaning out his desk and all these, like, decades-old insurance policies and aluminum siding things were, were in there. But I also discovered... Um, Lots of pages torn from a thoughts thoughts one of those thoughts for the days uh, thoughts for the day calendars, you know that you tear off each day and each day has a saying written on it. And my dad had a whole stack of these in his desk, and so he was kind of unbeknownst to me um, had been collecting aphorisms himself <laughs> um, uh, all this time, and we had never discussed it. Um, um, or, he, you know, he knew that I was writing books uh, uh, about um, uh, aphorisms, or actually, no, he, he passed away before uh, I had published those books. But he knew of my interest in, in, in literature, but we had never discussed that, and that was another kind of bizarre coincidence that I discovered after, after he died. Um, but so I'd, I went and studied poetry <laughs> at college, um, because that, I thought, was the highest form of writing you could possibly achieve. Uh, but then I discovered journalism and prose, and that that's a lot of fun, too. A very interesting career. Don't you wish you... Uh, it would be interesting, uh, after, after discovering this, after your dad died, like to be able to... Wow, I wish I could have talked to him about this. Or, I mean, that would seem to me, anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. It would, have been, it would have been interesting to talk to him about this. Um, in fact, one of the sayings that he had torn out of uh, that calendar is one of my all-time favorites, and it's 
um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and it goes, life consists of what you're thinking of all day. (laughs) And I think that's a brilliant and very witty and insightful and wise um, aphorism because I think that's part of, to bring it back to wit, I think that's part of what it means to live by your wits. Um, You know, in our lives, so many things happen to us that we don't control and we have no control over, Um, you know, whether it's in our professional or personal lives or, you know, the the tragedies that we all must deal with and suffer. Um, So there's a lot that is out of our hands um, in life. But what is always under our control and in our own hands is the way we, our attitude to those things and the way we respond, um, you know, psychologically or, or emotionally. And that's, for me, what that saying means, life consists of what you're thinking of all day. If you can, you know, keep your wits about you and um, determine your own attitude to, toward, toward events, then you can kind of retain an independence of mind and a resilience of spirit that um, I think that will, that helps people, helps us uh, navigate those, those inevitable troubles that, and, and challenges that we face. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, I, and as you were spe- talking before, you even mentioned it. But the word resiliency, resilient. You, you said resiliency of the mind. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's probably key to navigating the world, I guess, or to navigating one's life. Um, we only have a couple minutes left, so um, if listeners or when listeners want to get in touch with you um, online about this particular book and/or what you're doing. Um, how do they do that? Um, well, you can learn about more about the books uh, and and me on my website, jamesgeary.com. The books uh, can be ordered through Amazon or Barnes & Noble, or if you want to patronize your local bookstore, IndieBound is a great website to order books online through independent booksellers. And people can uh, message me on Twitter, um, uh, and I love to hear puns. So <laughs> send in your puns. Um, puns are always welcome. And so, okay, if you love to hear puns, then what do you do with the puns once you get get them? Anything? I retweet them. <laughs> and we'll, we'll engage in uh, pun friendly pun competitions with, um, with people. It's, uh, it's a great way to, to train your brain for wit is a little, um, you know, taking one theme and trying to make as many puns on it as you, as you possibly can. It's a good way to uh, spend your time. How many people do you have doing that? Oh, you know, sporadically people will email me puns and I'll come back with a pun to them. And a couple months ago I had a a couple people in a a Twitter thread that we were all going making puns on the ocean or or water, um, you know, over the course of a couple hours. So it's fun. It's, you know, it's more productive than getting lost in a, one of the other kind of rabbit holes you can find online. You're a very interesting man and author and Wit's End, uh, also a very uh, witty book, should I say, what wit is, how it works, and why we need it. And um, mention the website once more. JamesGeary.com. You can find out more about Wit's End and my other books there. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, great talking to you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 